you know, one of the things that kind of my rendering with these 13 do, and this is what you're pointing out, is that I implement them for the sake of precisely changing consciousness. Like my goal is to say, what would be the constellation of like major changes that if executed would alter consciousness in basic ways that would assure a different kind of civilization and some kind of existence for humanity in perpetuity um, instead of temporary. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Musing Mind podcast. This is a space to explore the complex and interweaving relationship between consciousness and culture, and the new possibilities that are emerging for how we might live in the 21st century. And I mean this both in terms of our individual lives, like what kinds of psychotechnologies and practices can we use to enrich our own experience but also in terms of our collective life, right? How can we design our collective systems to promote more sane and convivial ways of living? So in short, this podcast is a kind of rolling around in that middle ground or the connective tissue between cultural theory and contemplative practice. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Zachary Stein. Uh, Zach is difficult to introduce because he's so wide-ranging. He works directly with the American philosopher Ken Wilber as the co-president of the Center for Integral Wisdom, uh, bringing the heart of integral theory into the discussion of 21st century possibilities. He did his graduate education at Harvard, where he studied education and human development, and most of his work focuses on education, but more broadly conceived as the kind of human-making forces that operate within a society. His latest book, uh, Education in a Time Between Worlds, is insane. Um, It focuses on what education might become as we transition from what the world was and has been into what it might become if we decide to value educational abundance and human development as core kind of cultural ideals. Uh, And it is scholarly, which means that as far out as his proposals go, and they're really far out there, they're rigorously researched and supported and presented. So it's a really kind of refreshing take. And I wanted to speak to him specifically about a chapter titled The 13 Social Miracles. And these are what Zach calls practices in design fiction or concrete utopian theorizing. Which is to say, if we imagine the absolute best case scenario for human culture over the next 50 years, what are the things that need to happen? And unlike so many philosophers, and especially those who are kind of mainly interested in consciousness, uh, Zach gets really political. So he's offering policies and global projects and even laws, right? Concrete things that would set the cultural conditions for the flourishing of a more wholesome and complex and human kind of consciousness. You can find a full list of the miracles on the episode's show notes page, which is on the Musing Mind website. We uh, got into conversation in such a way that we actually only made it through kind of four or so of the 13, um, although we touched on a number of them. And uh, on that page, you'll also find a link to the Patreon site, which is where you can help offset the audio production costs or help support me to invest further in the quality of these projects. 
And so, with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Zach Stein. Cool. So I guess the way I thought would be fun to jump in, um, to put kind of a little groundwork in context before getting into the 13 miracles, um, is to ask, put simply, you know, since, since your focus really kind of hones in around education, to ask you what education is, but to give it a little more context in that through reading your book, I guess you could say that something has happened or something is happening that from one perspective, you could look at kind of really surging in the 1970s and kind of the neoliberal global surge of what you've called a world system. Um, But I think another way to look at it is when we talk about culture, like increasingly from that point on, we're, we're referring to something that is a global phenomenon, or at least there is a global dimension to kind of what we talk about when we talk about culture. Um, and you can look at human society as this increasingly kind of interconnected, complex system, you know, held together by global supply chains and media platforms and international economic ties and arrangements and this kind of thing. And when you have culture, right, culture itself becomes some kind of production line to, to use the same kind of metaphors language for humans, right? Humans and consciousness kind of form in this relationship to culture. And if we'll take a critical view of the world system that that began springing up in the 70s, that many might argue is exhausting itself or has kind of given all the value it has to offer. And we're kind of in a point right now where a lot of boiling points are coming to the fray through climate activism, of course, and, and mental health, and even just what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs, people being really unhappy with with their lives. I wanted to ask you about the role of education in this context of transitioning. Your, your book title is Education in a Time Between Worlds. And so if we see this transition from a world system that might not be serving us any longer or is, is exhausting itself to something that is different, kind of how education factors in. Yeah, I mean, well, thank you. No, I, I think you're seeing a, a good picture there you know there something did happen in the capitalist world system in around 1972 <laughs> and uh, this is a date specified by people like uh, david harvey <clears throat> who wrote the book uh, history of neoliberalism and so to look at this transition in 72 toward a different kind of economy and a new kind of quote globalization and instead of things slowing down when we knew there were limits to growth, uh, things sped up. And so one way to think about education writ large is that, well, education would be the thing that would allow you to, uh, you know, learn. And at a society wide level, at a cultural level, when you think of large scale projects in education, you usually think of public schooling. And in fact, it's hard to think of education as separate from schooling, something I've talk a lot about. But the basic notion is that uh, in all civilizations, there's been some kind of educational, let's call it an educational infrastructure. And in our civilization in particular, we're looking at most of our infrastructures being complicated in a bad way and fragile uh, and also a little bit lagging behind where they need to be given the realities of uh, where we're at. <clears throat> and so education right. is one of those. Education is one of those kinds of uh, failing or exhausted infrastructures. Uh, and so I guess what I'm saying is that akin to the project to, re- to rethink energy, 
and akin to the project to rethink our relationship to the biosphere. We actually really need to think at like a macro infrastructure level about how we're conceiving education itself and take responsibility for all of those macro level structures that actually are educational, even though we'd like to think education just happens in schools. So like policies about the internet, right. policies about the internet and labor law and uh, laws relative to the military, laws relative to borders and migration, laws relative to uh, human rights. There's a bunch of things that are not usually classified as, quote, educational policy that have sweeping educational implications. And so I'm actually, my work is in some ways making a request to kind of flip the figure in ground and to have a lot more policymakers start to think about the human development implications of their supposedly just uh, economic or legal uh, or um, ecosystem uh, policy initiatives. So, right, and yeah, in the book, uh, in the beginning, there's a line that I'm struggling to keep out of every essay I write because <laughs> it, it situates as education in this kind of larger story uh, with, with this kind of gravity. Um, you wrote that the years between 2000 and 2050 represent a critical turning point in the history of humanity and the planet. I argue that fundamental transformations of our social structures, so economies and institutions, ecosystems, meaning the biosphere and agriculture, and consciousness, culture and identity, are upon us, and these require a fundamentally new approach to education that entails the end of what we have known as schooling. And this is a lot of the work that you've been doing, especially since kind of uh, being dipped into the podcast world and, and answering or speaking to a lot of people about it, is decoupling education and schooling. Um, I've noticed a lot of times when people ask you, you know, okay, so you work in education, what is wh what kind of school should we build? What is the ideal school? And you make this really fascinating move where you take that as an opportunity to say, well, actually, a better school is a better world, that social structures themselves are educational forces, where we can't ignore them and just look at what's happening you know, inside of schools, because this overlooks the kind of larger infrastructure that holds the whole project together. Totally. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's a, that's a recurring conversation. I think probably for most people who are in the field of education, and I think especially maybe for an educational philosopher where parents in particular, uh, will ask you kind of where they should send their kid to school or what's the best school you've seen or what's the best approach to education you've seen. And so it ends up being kind of a difficult conversation because it's not that there aren't good schools out there. It's that from my perspective, you're misunderstanding the nature of human development. Uh, if you think the main effect is the, the school, um, when in fact, uh, as I'm trying to say, most of the kind of surrounding uh, environment of a developing child is educating that child in some way. So if you go to the mall, you're being educated. Uh, if you go to Walmart, right. you're being educated. The grocery store. Which is terrifying. Yeah, well, the grocery store uh, educates you. And right. the probably main effect on human development, this is a very cynical view, but I'll just throw it out there. And maybe, maybe it's not true, but it's perhaps true that the main effect on human development and choice making is actually advertising. Hmm. And, uh, and so that is again, just a provocative statement to 
flip the figure and ground and think, where is the education happening? And it may be that schools are actually often appearing to not work because they're having to take up the burden and the slack for all the other things happening in society that are like county or anti-educational. And so I've seen the schools and teachers in particular burdened with the task of accomplishing democracy in the context of macroeconomic structures that wouldn't allow for it. Uh, And so that's this bind that we're stuck in. uh, If we limit the notion of education to schooling, then we, you know, it's, it's based on a misunderstanding of, (laughs) of, of human development. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's that's a that's a key insight, and the, one of the implications there uh, gets into the social miracles, um, right? So that's why. So in this book, that which is you know education in a time between worlds, this is why you have an entire chapter there that's devoted to what you call the thirteen social miracles, and these span everything from you know guaranteed basic income to total planetary demilitarization. I'll kind of pass it over to you to, to introduce them, but I wanted to get into kind of one more topic beforehand, just to kind of set the, totally. the foreground for, for what really like what really made these jump out at me and, and why I resonated so deeply with, with the work that I think you were putting out there is that especially in, I don't know what to call this cultural moment we're in, if we can call it global capitalism or, or late capitalism or, or whatever, but this, this kind of system that we're in that we're talking about kind of got ratcheted up in around 72 um, I don't know, what do you what do you call the current cultural moment that we're in? Sometimes I call it meta modern. Yeah, right. Uh, that can be useful. Right. I use that as a marker of his, historiological epochization, which is to say, it's marking a historical epoch, and it has a lot to do with the change in seventy two, which was in some sense the move into uh, postmodernism proper. But there was another change. It's hard to date this one, but my guess would be it's probably two thousand and one. Uh, mm-hmm. when we began to get uh, the metamodern, which is probably like late parentheses, late capitalism. <laughs> it's like super, right, right. like super late capitalism. But it's like the only way to maintain that capitalism is feasible is to you know, ratchet up the simulations of success um, mm-hmm. and uh, detract attention from the actual productivity or lack thereof um, and actual right. ecological footprint. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, so if we look at, okay, we'll call it kind of super late capitalism or kind of this metamodern moment, this kind of liminal transitional space, it kind of the climax of the logic is, is this idea that every human comes to ask again over and over when, whether it's at the end of kind of a a procession of schooling, whether that ends high school, college, graduate school, which at some point you kind of look out at the world and you have to ask yourself, how am I going to earn my living? Right, this this kind of idea that I think belongs to capitalist modernity, and and in a way, I guess the history of our species that life is to be earned, and that no one should just receive the means of life without earning them, and that the market is this kind of ever present opportunity to earn uh, that living. And when I think about us as being in this transitional space, um, and kind of the potentialities that are swimming around right now as we move from wherever it is that we are, and from where we've come to where we might go that that kind of anchor 
is something that we might actually conceivably be able to toggle and displace from the center. And I guess a, a way to kind of elaborate that is there, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin writes, and I think she, she kind of hits the nail on the head. She wrote that if you free your mind of the idea of deserving and of the idea of earning, you'll begin to be able to think, which is to say that like the kind of thinking and, and like the qualitative experience that goes on when you're existing mixed up with that incentive of, or the idea of how am I going to earn my living is different than the kind that might happen if you, if you manage to displace that from that kind of gravitational center of, of your life. And so we've kind of progressed up to this point, always having to figure out anew each person, how am I going to earn my living? How am I going to earn it to the point where life becomes a commodity, right? Each human is in this process of commodifying themselves, which the way it kind of plays out now is you quantify yourself, you render things measurable, which reduces them, oversimplifies them. Um, and you do a lot of writing about this in terms of education. But I wonder if that might be one of kind of the, the possibilities ahead of us is to look at this underlying idea of life is something that nobody earns. Everybody has to figure out how to do so themselves anew over and over. If that's something that we might realistically be able to think about, like nicking away at or displacing a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is, <clears throat> I mean, these are actually very deep waters. Like, you actually get uh, pretty metaphysical pretty quick with this line of thinking, mm -hmm. which is which is great. I like it. <laughs> but, you know, there's this issue with the free rider problem. Um, and this is an issue in kind of social theory and economic theory where there's a sense that there's there's a real economy. You know, food needs to be grown and... Uh, oil needs to be extracted at least until we have something else. Um, and the grocery stores, uh, even though they might not be great uh, educationally, um, do have to provide food. And so there's this dynamic where some people say, well, there's some population of the society that actually produces. And then there are these other members of the population who are quote unquote free riders, which is to say, it's not clear how they're actually integratable into these productive folks and how do we deal with the free riders? And, mm -hmm. and that's, that seemed to be like a problem in social contract theory, right? Cause if you go back to Locke and Rousseau and the origins of this idea of democracy, um, cause you have to understand like even the, you know, the idea of wage labor and other things and the earning of the living is, is unique to capitalism. But the notion that one needs to contribute in the right way, to civilization or else you get kicked out of civilization or put in prison or punished or, or, right. fall off or killed. That's always been there. Like, uh, you know, it was often the case that you were finding in, you know, medieval and ancient civilizations, um, you know, very complex relationship relation, very complex relation, very complex relation to the, the norms set upon you by the civilization to conform to a certain type of life to a certain form of work. Um, so some people would see the movement out of pre-modernity into modernity as a triumph because you actually have the idea that, oh, and I get to earn a living. I don't have to do what my father did and what his father did and what his father did. <laughs> so, right, so there's like this moment of freedom, uh, ostensible freedom in the in movement into wage labor and uh, this notion of earning a living. But at the same time, you get a removal of the individual from the covenant of community, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which means that the reason you did what your father did and he did what his father did 
um, because there was a coherent, usually religious narrative about the roles in the community and the kind of God-given functional distribution, let's say. And uh, that was believed right up to Adam Smith. Um, by the way, and David Graeber points this out, you know, Adam Smith believed that the so-called invisible hand of the market, um, and he writes this in his first book, not the wealth of nations, but on the moral sentiments, uh, this notion of the free hand of the market, which implies this complex um, division of labor, which is tied up in this notion of the freedom that comes. Uh, you know, the free hand of the market was for Adam Smith providence with a capital P. It was an mm -hmm. idea that he, it was an idea that he actually took from Islamic theologians. Um, and so, it's only relatively recently, after the move out of out of pre modernity and the medieval forms of quote unquote non wage labor employment uh when you get into the you know full-blown capitalism into late capitalism when late wage labor itself is seen as natural when when we can't actually in our bodies imagine a world without the existence of wage labor um, right. uh, that's when you start to get into these different situations where now wage labor which solved this problem <laughs> has become a problem uh, that's even that's even what Adam Smith wrote about the division of labor. There's that sneaky part. Uh, I think Noam Chomsky pointed this out to me for the first time, or reading him, was that there's actually a section in, in Adam Smith's work where he says that d the division of labor, if it's carried out to an extreme, renders like the human species as ignorant as it can possibly become. Like, and right. Smith wasn't missing words. He, I think, he actually used the word stupid. Like, he was very clear that this is a really bad thing carried to its extreme. He, he was, and in in his moral writings, and Adam Smith was more famous for his ethical and moral writings in his day than his economics. Uh, he had this hu these huge notions of Christian charity and the need to have educational things outside of the market, um, precisely to stop the degradation that might come from things like the division of labor or the quantification of labor and the quantification of identity that comes with wage labor. And so, yeah, so that's, that's part of that. So that this is just a preamble to say that this question is actually quite complicated because for many people, uh, the kind of right to earn a living and to be free to choose to be employed in what way they want is actually seen as a, as a real dignity. Um, yeah. whereas for other people, this is seen as a, a soul crushing burden. <laughs> um, and, so the, and that's, and it's, it's complicated. Uh, yeah. at the, at the end of the day, you have to think about again, civilization itself as a educational enterprise and the question of what is the message that civilization kind of tells those people who are participating it and perpetuating it and mm -hmm. when you were in the covenant of the community let's say in the pre-modern uh civilization told you a story about your worth for better and for worse <laughs> um in in the late late capitalist civilization that we're looking at now um, the meaning of your work, and this is, you know, David Graeber's bullshit jobs is to the point, the meaning of your work and the radical differentiation of it from other work, which is to say how far it is from craft work or holistic production, sometimes called petite bourgeois production, uh, which is returning in some small economic sectors, the micro brews and the handmade woodworking and, and whatnot. But mostly people are doing very routine uh, explicitly commoditized jobs where their unique expressions are actually uh, not wanted 
and punished. <laughs> right. And so in that context, uh, beyond certain levels, I think of kind of societal development, moving into these kind of postmodern um, and metamodern uh, historical epochs, you do get a new thinking about something that's different from the pre-modern, different from the modern wage labor, right? Which is to say some kind of post-capitalist, post-wage labor way of relating to the basics of the economic system, the basic materiality of perpetuating human life. And mm -hmm. which is to say, is it the case that civilization ought to provide for all its members, irrespective of their ability to contribute to, to civilization? Um, which is right. different from saying, should civilization support everyone in it, no matter what they do? That's totally different. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a question of, should there be some way that for someone who is, uh, for example, disabled um, or who is uh, drawn to a particular type of non-productive, but still potentially useful, but who knows when it will be useful scholarship, right? Like mm -hmm. actual non-applied academic research where there's no possibility for technological or economic gain coming from the research in the foreseeable future. Like those kinds of things which don't fit easily into capitalist commoditization of work and yet really easily fit into the types of things human beings do and do well and thrive in doing. <laughs> you see, so there's this right. between the full range of what humans can do and actually if you get into the metapsychology, it's actually the full range of our, our you know, kind of our developmental and archetypal expressions. Uh, that range is so much broader than the slots provided. Uh, and the slots provided, for those people who are very reflective, the slots provided actually appear to be contributing to this system that, again, started going faster right when we knew there were limits on growth and we needed to go slower. <clears throat> so I think there's also an added duplicity uh, in some of these types of forms of employment where people uh, are concerned uh, about how much contributing to this civilization is actually still a good idea. And I've noted this under the heading of legitimation crisis. So it's not sometimes even that you don't enjoy the work, it's that you're worried about the overall net effect of actually doing your job well. <laughs> uh, and and that's a that's a legitimation crisis, and this happens um, uh, beginning in school. When uh, and this is one of the problems with schooling is that if you attach the schooling to a particular ideology like the state, then if the child is so disillusioned, let's say the adolescent, with the state itself because the politics are so ridiculous, uh, they will dismiss learning and education uh, as necessarily somehow tied to the school and the state. Um, mm -hmm. So then you get a disinvestment from conventional notions of success in school. Um, and this is the best and brightest. And so we saw this Silicon Valley wanted to like, uh, uh, you know, claim this trend for itself. It's actually a, it's a broader trend of the relatively unschooled <laughs> who rebelled against school, uh, you know, doing, better than those people who succeeded in school by conventional standards. Well, I think, I, I think you're right in, in the beginning when you pointed out that this kind of uh, threatens to get into metaphysics pretty quickly. 
Um, but which is an area that you've done so much really fascinating work. And it's also a way that I've been trying to think about kind of what's happening and the kind of consciousness that is resultant of capitalism um, and or the ways that kind of this particular manifestation of capitalism interacts with consciousness today. And I think that what happened when you following the kind of postmodern, you know, deconstruction of all the narratives, all the ways that we thought about objective progress and, and God and, and all these things, um, you had the vacuum created that science and quantifiable metrics and empiricism very readily kind of filled in, right? So that we, we felt as though we discarded metaphysics in, in favor of something that was truer or, or more accurate. But I don't think you can do that, right? I think that we are mythopoetic by nature. We're always living through some kind of story that we're weaving about who we are, where we are, and what we're doing, whether or not we are consciously engaging with that story or it's kind of repressed down to the unconscious. And one of the ways I think about what's happened is that the story that, if, if you want to go so far as to call it the metaphysics of capital, is that it's a simple belief. It's a simple line that what is best for capital is best for human beings or that capital growth is a suitable or good proxy for human growth. And in many ways, uh, that served us, right? In many ways that you can actually look at lines where you can say, look, increasing kind of our material quantifiable abundance really did lead to some things that we might call human progress. Um, but there's a point where they they have to splinter apart kind of the proxy of capital and the human because there is no interiority to capital, right? Capital, whether it's a, a tractor or any kind of productive asset, does not have a subjective sense of its own existence. Whereas not only does a human have this thing, right, this kind of consciousness, but it's one of those most intimate and defining kind of presences and, and phenomenons in our lives. And so one of the, that's, I worry that if we kind of overcommit ourselves to this story of capital growth, we further marginalize any consideration to the interiority of the human, which is so much of, of what your work and people in the similar, similar fields are doing is taking this kind of complex systems approach, but married and, and brought together with this kind of contemplative reverence for what it feels like to exist for consciousness, for the subjective experience of being alive. Um, and so I almost wonder if, if kind of this transitional moment is an opportunity to really rethink how we approximate progress and, and growth to kind of bring back a respect and, and an interest and an exploration and a passion for that interiority, what it can feel like to exist. That's very interesting. Um, you know, the relationship between capital and consciousness, I mean, that's the crux of the issue. Yeah. In, in fact, it's not that we are like distracted by materiality. You know, it seems like that. It seems like the capital story, as you call it, is like the. Uh, you're probably too young to know Scrooge McDuck, but it's a character who <laughs> has a he has a giant kind of like skyscraper sized uh, container of gold coins in which he swims, like jumps off diving boards and swims in all this. Right. Hard right. He swims in the hoarded gold, the massive hoarding of actual material capital. But that's actually not the case. There, you know, and this is again 1972. One of the things that happened then was we removed the, the dollar from gold. And mm -hmm. so it is the case that capital itself is pure consciousness. Like it's embedded right. materially in ones and zeros, 
right? So at the end of the day, there's some computer mainframes, kind of like where it is, quote unquote. Um, but the meaning of the ones and zeros uh, and the implication uh, of capital growth, as you're saying, um, these are uh, facets of the imagination. Um, and the hypertrophying of a certain kind of imagination as opposed to another. You're saying that <laughs> basically um, it is sapping the consciousness out of the world and that this way of thinking about ourselves is actually making it harder to think about ourselves clearly. That the way we're making sense is actually confusing us. <laughs> right? And so yeah. like we're making sense by looking at the world and kind of applying this measure to it, which we call money. Uh, and we're trying to organize the money and make the money grow, which is just this measure, just this idea of a difference between things being worth this much, let's say gold, but it's not even gold. Um, you know, we're running that framework over all of reality as a way to make sense of reality, as if it's insightful to reality to know how much money something is worth or to know how much money somebody has produced or how much money a country has produced, like as if that is a useful measure for sense making. Uh, of course it's not. Um, and what that means is that we're literally confusing ourselves. You know, I talk about the education commodity proposition in my book, in right? Both, in both my books, actually. And you know, the education commodity proposition is actually a, an instance case of this relation between consciousness and capital showing that the, uh, you know, the kind of focus on capital is, uh, degrading to, uh, awareness of consciousness or sensitivity to consciousness. Um, and the argument goes something like, you know, education, learning in particular, <clears throat> is a phenomenon that involves consciousness, intersubjectivity between student and teacher, self-reflection on the part of the student, operating on ideas, trafficking in validity claims and normativity. That's education. Uh, very hard to measure. <laughs> uh, and that means that when you invest in education, it's often hard to tell if you're getting your money back on your investment, right? What's the return? And this is the classic statement. What's the return on our tax dollar? Like right. if we put that much money into education, how do we know we're getting kickback? Like in educational output, as it were. Um, and uh, so then you roll in standardized testing infrastructures to quantify something that was previously not quantified in order to monetize it in order basically to run uh, all kinds of variations on return on investment um, right it simplifies the decision making because then you can talk about efficiency and and you can feel comfortable in the decisions you're making and something that's so complex otherwise right and and there you said it so decision making choice making related to consciousness you want to actually simplify choice making is different from adding clarity to choice making. Um, so to simplify, you turn the situation, which is actually complex, into something that's complicated. Um, right. Whereas the uh, clarity uh, is the um, <laughs> clarity is the remedy to complexity. Something told to me by uh, Forrest Landry in his metaphysical system. Mm -hmm. And so there you're looking at the complex considered judgment of the teacher in a condition of uncertainty. 
um, which is where educational assessment and the feedback that comes from the kind of assessment of teacher and student in the teacher-student dynamic of teacherly authority and, and, and uh, studentliness. <laughs> uh, it, that's where you're getting actual real assessment. The, the standardized tests are, are primarily for running cost-benefit analysis um, and uh, return on investment. And so the education commodity proposition is literally this case where concerns with capital began to override the concerns of the life world in the classroom. Uh, and what that literally means in technical sense, because the life world is this term from phenomenology that Habermas uses, it literally means that capital turned the volume down on consciousness. Yikes. And, uh, and that's basically happening across the board. So that's what's happening when you go to the grocery store uh, and you look at all the commodities on the shelf and you're overwhelmed by them and their cost. Uh, the actual supply chain behind them that put them on the shelves is mostly occluded. You don't see it. Right. Um, and so all the other things you could be aware of about the product, uh, and especially all the human relationships involved in its production, which is to say that the commodity supply chain, uh, to many theorists, even good theorists remains a, uh, complex system of causal relationships, um, in the Wilbur's yeah. lower right hand quadrant, when in fact the commodity supply chain is, mostly involving you know blood sweat and tears of actual humans right. so that the tortilla chips on the shelf actually represent a ton of relationships that you're in right actually right. a lot of intimacy in the uh, global capitalist world system that's one of the things that's important to recognize in its evolutionary trajectory is a movement towards uh, intimacy as, as uh, gaffney would say so so that's just part of again turning the volume down on consciousness when you go into the grocery store um so that uh yeah, you're you're literally not aware of what you're doing right if we frame things in this way and we ask okay well you know what now what, what do we do if we buy any of this uh, how do we kind of think about retuning the volume knob and kind of reconfiguring the relationship um not even just between capital and and consciousness that's one way to look at it but just kind of our larger situation here we're growing so disconnected from the meaning and, and i really like this way of thinking about it the intimacy like you wrote of our of our decisions so it's so easy to live unaware to the kind of human implications of, of what we're doing and even if you take the position that kind of the logic that brought us here is fading right this is something that for example mark fisher um, in his book capitalist realism does is he takes his whole book and kind of his point is that capitalism is making it difficult to imagine an alternative beyond the kind of conceptual confines of capitalist thought. So we can, like you were saying, we wound up in this kind of wage labor position where we can only imagine a world that is kind of organized around wage labor. He wrote towards the end of his book, he said, the good news is that neoliberalism has in most senses been discredited. Um, but he also says that doesn't mean that it's disappeared. It's still kind of dominating the political economy, but he says it's doing so not as kind of part of a phenomenon that has any forward momentum, but a kind of inertial and undead default. And mm -hmm. he says that what we need to do in this situation where neoliberalism is carrying on as this kind of undead default force is to articulate credible and coherent alternatives to kind of stretch our imagination and really ask what is possible kind of beyond the current political economic um, unconscious. And so in service of doing that, that's really one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation today is to talk about your 13 social miracles, which 
do exactly this. They kind of invite us into this space where we try to imagine what is possible in ways that might not come conventionally or might be difficult. At least they were for me. They helped me really expand kind of my understanding of, of what we might be able to create in this time. So how do you like to introduce the miracles? You know, as I do in the book, I, I talk about their genesis in a couple of ways. I mean, the term social miracles is usually the thing to start with. I'm pretty sure I stole it from Eisenstein, but I read his book so quickly, like in like a weekend of intense. And uh, is that sacred economics? Sacred economics and the, the magisterial one, the, uh, yeah. the ascent of humanity. Um, so somewhere in there, I believe he used this phrase, social miracles, you know, in passing. He's such a good writer, just drops this phrase in passing. <laughs> and so I kind of pick it up. And, and the, you know, the idea of the social miracle is that, you know, a lot of futurist thinking, like if you're doing futurology, right, if you're thinking in a principled way about the future, um, which is one way to think about what science fiction writers do, you know, a lot of it, even if you're thinking about a positive future or a negative future, a lot of that kind of futurology is focused primarily, again, on thinking about things like the commodity supply chains, but only in terms of technology, causality. Um, so you end up having these kind of reductive ways of thinking about the future where the miracle you're hoping for or the kind of black swan event that you're watching the ripples fold out from or the scenario planning you're doing for a certain industry the things you're tracking are mostly uh, exterior infrastructural uh, innovations in technology, innovations in some healthcare thing, innovations in our ability to compute and to, or ability to uh, energy, for example, is a classic one, uh, or the disaster is an ecological outside disaster or a, a war where everything's destroyed or a famine or a plague where there's... So, you know, being a psychologist, uh, I, I and prone to do futurology, I, I began thinking about, well, what if we did that same kind of scenario planning and thinking, but began to consider quote unquote miracles that were social, not technological. Mm -hmm. And so this led to a different way of kind of like modeling scenario planning and other things. Um, and you know, the, the insight of the social miracle is that just like many of the technologies that get scoped are miraculous in their ability to change the nature of human life. So for example, if we really solve the energy problem, right? And I talk about this uh, as one of the social miracles, uh, right? You know, infinite and abundant energy, right? Which is that we don't pretend energy needs to be a profit source, right? We actually realize that the universe is overflowing with energy uh, and we solve uh, the energy problem. And, you know, many people argue that we have many of the technologies that could do that and they've been shelved, but that's another mm -hmm. conversation. Um, and so, yeah, when you, when you think about something like that, uh, you know, you see all of these ramifications from a basic, almost unimaginable scientific innovation where the life world that results from just the change in our physical infrastructures creates like the sci-fi scenario. Like life is totally different. Right. And I'm thinking, well, there are, there are comparable kind of like miraculous things that could occur in the spaces of culture and individual psychology, which is to say like as radical as infinite, like free energy might be, imagine a situation where there was total reconciliation between all the world's religious leaders and the culture at large came to understand religion as uh, 
not something that creates wars, but as something that, you know, develops people, um, which is another one of my social miracles, you know, unity between all the world's religions. Um, right. Or, and more to the point of the thread of our conversation, what if the civilization decided that humans do not need to earn their place, right? That in fact, just as nature has provided for us, like, you know, the air has been free so far. <laughs> so far, <laughs> yeah. Like the oil has been free. We just pull it from the earth. You know, right. I don't know how many millions of years of nature's labor that we are for right. free, more or less. I mean, it costs us to build the extraction, but it, we, she doesn't charge us for it. Yeah. Um, depending on how you run your metaphysics, maybe she is charging us for it. <laughs> yeah, but the point is that there's a certain generosity, apparently, or... Um, plentitude as the neoplatonist might say in the matrix of uh nature um which our civilization does not mimic our civilization narrows its focus on nature to a competitive solely competitive matrix uh and then believes that in a kind of neo-social darwinist way this wage labor story is true and that a person who can't make a living actually doesn't really deserve to live uh right. now we all know that's incorrect but it still feels like it would be a social miracle for there to be a kind of socioeconomic uh, attitude of plentitude. And uh, I'm not actually trying to propose some naive kind of leftist or liberal, we can pay for everything kind of scenario. Um, mm -hmm. I'm proposing a much different way of living as a civilization, um, not uh, giving everyone money so they can go to the mall and the grocery right, store. Right. They, they still exist yeah so the basic idea here is that you know we're looking at with some of the social miracles a situation of being in a kind of ecstatic a kind of ecstatic ordeal of unbearable generosity right so it's like we are confronting the stranger the refugee we are confronting the end of what we've known as earth and what that means is that, uh, and I've used this phrase before, it's the unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe. Isn't yeah. It ends up being this ecstatic ordeal of unbearable generosity or unbearable care and concern. You know, the, the classic stories from the Axial Age religions um, are stories about these strangers that are met on the road. Right. And the road is outside of civilization. That's what's kind of interesting. You know, we're used to a civilization, especially in the United States, where it's like there's nowhere where there's not the rule of law. I mean, you can find right. places on earth where there's not the rule of law, but you have to go there. And ancient times, it was easy to be in the wilderness where there was no uh, sovereign. And if there was someone who like claimed sovereignty of the land, you certainly didn't have police there. So when you encountered a stranger on the road, there was a certain way of encountering that actually we are beginning to return to as our normal forms of civilization begin to erode so that many of our meetings end up being meetings uh like those characterized in the story of the you know the good samaritan um, mm -hmm. what do you do with the truly helpless when you meet them on the road outside of the normal confounds of civilization this is the question we're facing and the social miracles are like this broadest response to that which is to say like we can't really go around 
asking that question by ourselves one-on-one and just trying to save the world through random acts of kindness. Right. Like do that, please sincerely. (laughs) But, uh, but we also need to think about extending the logic I just articulated to thinking in the realms of social policy. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a request, right? To the elite who could otherwise probably build some breakaway civilization and survive the collapse. Right. It's a request for them to endure uh, the unbearable request for, right, the ecstatic ordeal of true generosity and caring. Um, yeah. And uh, and this applies also. This is also what the eco eco activists are are asking for. Um, right. It's a return to the reality of the human as you would meet them on the road as a stranger. And the bad answer is, of course. Uh, racism, right? Xenophobia, right? A return to basically early forms, early capitalist forms of nationalism and pre-modern forms of ethnocentrism. Uh, that's one way of answering that question of what do you do with a stranger, right? But we need a better answer, uh, obviously, uh, if we yeah. don't want to just if we don't want to just devolve instead of evolve. And the social miracles are meant to be kind of like a a thought experiment, really. It's not a social platform. I'm really not actually saying that I have a way to get from A to B. <laughs> and I'm also not saying that I've worked out the details of each of the miracles. I'm actually suggesting that we entertain as a thought experiment a radically different social world that instead of a dystopian way of thinking about the future, we allow ourselves uh, you know, concrete utopian or what is sometimes called design fiction scenarios that are uh, so positive that they confront us with the opportunity for that ecstatic ordeal, right? Right. Uh, And unless we hold the imagination that starkly and say, whoa, yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, If if we're not actually totally cynical and we think, holy crap, right, as Buckminster Fuller said, right, back again, 70, 72, I think, possibly, you know, We've got enough <laughs> for everyone, guys. Yeah, um, and we we allow ourselves the opportunity all the time to imagine the kind of worst case dystopian scenarios. Mm-hmm. But we so often, like using the logic of, well, how would you ever pay for that? We thwart any kind of move beyond towards the best case scenarios. And so there's this kind of un, you know we're we're unbalanced where it's we're kind of swimming in dystopian civilizational collapse kind of apocalypse scenarios, and we have a paucity of of the inverse, right? Of, of, well, what's the other side of that spectrum? Well, it's interesting. I, I think a lot about the, how the culture in general's like a uh, kind of dream, a kind of dream state. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like it's where we do our dreaming and, you know, those people who make the dream, right? Hollywood where the dreams are made, the people right. who are making the dream, they know that it's actually as bad as nightmares can be. It's actually nicer to wake up from a nightmare. Because you wake up from a nightmare, like, oh, whew, thank God, it was a nightmare. You step out of fear, <laughs> like, I'm so glad to be in this world. Uh, if you are in certain types of situations in your life and you have a certain type of amazing good dream, uh, like you remember an old lover or a parent who has long passed and you spend time with them, uh, or you're in economic dire straits and you have a dream where that's not the case, and you wake up from that dream, even though it was an amazing dream, <laughs> uh, 
it's way worse to wake up from that dream than to have waken up from the nightmare. Right. Uh, and this is something known to people, especially who are grieving. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that there's been a shift in the culture away from real utopian thinking. And I do remember that when that movie Avatar came out, uh, there were scenes in it where the life world of those beings on that planet and the planet itself was so beautiful that it actually created a cascade uh, of like s- depressions and suicides. Uh, oh, wow. Afterwards, uh, I think you can look this up on Google. I'm, I'm, I think yeah. I'm remembering this correctly, but uh, and the basic idea was that world was so beautiful that these people couldn't stand to live in the world that they were actually in. Wow! Yeah, then you wake and back so, up to reality, right? So there's that sense that the subconscious of our culture is actually protecting us in a way from these visions of a world that could be so much beautiful as eyes and you know this better world that, right. that you know is beautiful that your heart knows is beautiful. Um, and the heart is what is what dreams. And you know, there's reason to think that all of the obsession with the hyperviolent media and the Game of Thrones and all of that stuff, it's it's to make us so glad to be in this world. And actually to it helps us see this world as actually not barbaric when this world is brutally barbaric. Right. Even in like the suburbs of Boston, like you just have to look a little bit more closely. Yeah, uh, but Game of Thrones makes it impossible to see. For example, one of those types yeah. of suburban situations, let alone an inner city, is barbaric. Hmm. Yeah, so the social miracles are that they are miracles. They're literally things that would occur in the culture or the social world that would appear like a miracle, as I described. Um, truly unbearable generosity, which is to say, to actually give more than you can, mm-hmm. uh, is perceived as a social miracle. This is kind of like saintly behavior, you know. Um, right. Uh, and the request f- again to believe that some kind of future is actually possible. It's not utopian to allow ourselves the danger and potential emotional discomfort of looking into the matrix created by the social miracles into the social world and the second nature that humans would live in where we, the civilization would contain us and actually care for us yeah. instead of the civilization penning us in so it's containing us <laughs> but then it's kind of like preying on us right uh, and so yeah so the social miracles it is definitely um uh the most exciting chapter in the book <laughs> but it's also from a scholarly perspective like the least adequate it is very much a big, right it's very much like a big brush stroke take and a kind of evocative an expressive thought experiment rather than like a detailed look at, for example, basic income or right. a detailed look at uh, the energy issue. Um, I leave these intriguing kind of like marks at certain trailheads so people can go up and explore these issues. The more important yeah. thing is, is that the more important thing is the framing, the idea of the social miracle and the idea of the necessity for concrete utopian design fiction Um and for having the good dream about the social future that's actually so good it's painful to wake up from yeah Um, that teaches you something about yourself that the bad dream doesn't teach you about yourself Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we need to start having those kinds of dreams not because they're possible not because we know how to get from here to there uh not because it's uh somehow an answer or a solution um but uh Precisely because it stimulates the social imagination in a different direction. You know? Now, you could also say that the yeah. other, other large-scale social fantasies 
uh, like the ones, for example, being sold to us by the mainstream discourse in the civilization, uh, they're just as unrealistic and fictitious as the social miracles, as you noted, like understanding capital is able to grow endlessly, <laughs> uh, uh, is a, you know, noted by many economists as a kind of fiction. Um, Right. So it's not about who's realistic and who's not realistic. Let's not make any mistake. <laughs> you right. know, uh, it's about what's the social world that we are willing to imagine and try to bring into existence. Um, yeah. Right now, we're mostly willing to imagine a social world in which generosity is basically some kind of illusion or epiphenomenon. Uh, that generosity is uh, illogical from a purely rationally self-interested perspective. And that's something like game theory and competition dynamics are the ontological nature of human relationship. Uh, and so that again, uh, is a psychological phenomenon, a human development education phenomenon. That's a pretty severe misunderstanding of human relationship and communication. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but that is again, the backdrop upon which we, we're working to imagine social futures. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, it's, it's basic work in, in, in sociology in one sense, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of doing sociology that hasn't been done for a long time. Um, utopian writing was of course a whole genre. Um, and, uh, those works are fascinating and were some of the inspiration, um, as well. Right. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think the miracles do is they offer a frame for kind of rethinking what progress might be. Like I, I'm really interested in, in the idea of progress and how we think about it, how we talk about it, uh, how we measure it. And a lot of kind of what's driving us deeper into the world system we're in now is, is we're using the same kind of metrics of progress, the same ideas of what it is. Uh, but what, what the miracles kind of made possible for me is offered a frame where you can rethink progress in such a way where you ask and you just playfully ask and imagine, can we generate like realistically, given all that we have, all that we are capable of, can we generate a kind of abundance that can be democratized? And that's a really important kind of keyword. Can you democratize a kind of abundance that liberates people and mass from the kind of scarcity, uh, zero sum kind of survival insecurity dynamics or, or what John Maynard Keynes called the economic problem. You know, can you, can we democratize a way kind of, or a platform above those kind of dynamics that create certain mentalities? And I don't know. And it's a thought experiment, like you mentioned, right. and maybe in service of doing so, um, what I'll do is I'll list out all 13 for anyone listening on the show notes. I'll have the entire list of the social miracles. You can see them at once, but I would like to dive into a couple, um, and just kind of throw some out there and, and play with them a little bit. Um, and I think, uh, we can start right with the first one because the first one, the first social miracle is a, a debt jubilee for students and nations. And I think it's a really good example to kind of show how we can mistake the way things are now and kind of the form that society and culture has calcified into is the only imaginable way uh, that things can be done. Because if you go around and, and you have conversations with people about hypothetically, what if we just erased all the debt, right? A clean slate debt jubilee for students, for nations, you might get the response of, you know, yeah, that'd be nice, you know, but not realistically, like we can't actually do that right? The, the whole economy would collapse. It, it violates something that feels like a basic principle of the way the world works, I think. And, but the fact is, if you look at human history, 
we're almost the exception in the sense that we don't declare debt jubilees. That as far back as like 4,000 years ago in, in Sumerian Babylonian culture, debt jubilees were practiced almost regularly. Um, and it's kind of crazy. You had predatory lending back then, but you had peasants on farms who were being loaned out, you know, various goods and, and values. And when they couldn't pay back their debts, if you had a bad harvest or whatever, um, the loaners would literally repossess their family members. They would come and take your children or your wife um, until you could pay back your debt. So the peasants would have to abandon their homes and go live in these like semi-nomadic caravans out on the fringes of, of civilization and kind of like desert nomad groups hiding out. And then eventually this would happen to such a degree that kind of the social fabric would, would degrade and the ruler or the king would declare a debt jubilee. There would be this massive celebration. Everyone comes home and you restart. Uh, but today there's nowhere left to hide, right? Today, there's no kind of semi-nomadic desert caravan that people who are feeling burdened and, and waited upon by the debts that they've incurred um, to kind of hide out from, from the realities that they're facing. And so we internalize it and we suffer it. And then we wonder why there's a mental health crisis or we, you know, we, want, we ask all these questions of how did we end up here? But we're in this system where a lot of people who've really looked at it, we've mentioned David Graeber a few times and you know, his, his first really big book was a, a study of the first 5,000 years of debt. And he comes out with the exact same conclusion. You know, his like final paragraph there is that not only that should we declare a debt jubilee, um, and he wrote something like, because it would alleviate so much genuine human suffering, but that it would help remind us that this kind of idea of democracy, that if it is anything, it is that which allows, grants us the ability to agree to arrange things in different ways. And he kind of subjects debt to that logic. So I thought that was such a good way to introduce the kind of miracles and kind of bend the imagination to, to have us open up to what actually is possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's absolutely sourced in, in Graeber. You know, I, I cite him a lot in my book and, and it is a, it's a fascinating, fascinating historical thread, this thread of the Jubilee and the whole tradition of these sometimes called Saturnalia were these festivals because it wasn't just that the debt was relieved it was actually that there was a whole period of time in which there was a explicit overturning of social norms and conventions mm. um, so that the men dressed as the women and the you know the, the king was dressed as a peasant and peasants dressed as the king and like there was basically a time of uh, uh, carnival um, wow, yeah. coinciding often with the jubilee which is why when you say jubilee you usually think like a party um uh, and what's interesting about that is, is that one of the things that Jubilee was doing was not just resolving that recurring cycle of socioeconomic problems that accumulates from debt. Um, it did that, you know, it was also a signal. And again, this comes back to the absence of the covenant of community. It was a signal that the economic system is not primary to the sense making a religious system right which is to say like no, 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 no we're not god right we're we make these laws but we can adapt and change and so there's something important about sending that signal as a civilization it, you know of course the pre-modern ways that was done involved static hierarchies of priestly class and kings and aristocrats and so there's some very different context it was nothing like late late capitalism uh but the same general idea that you know are we going to allow ourselves to be 
imprisoned and alienated and brutalized by our own inventions and abstractions and creations? Um, That's the question. Uh, And in some sense, it's a question of how to pay for it. But in another question, in another sense, it's that question I just asked. And right. What comes first? Yeah. I specifically talk about a student loan Jubilee because of the education commodity proposition, which I discussed. And the idea there is that the degree to which education becomes a transactional relationship, that education actually becomes a commodity exchange relationship. So the degree to which like I take out a loan that's equivalent to like a house mortgage in order to sit in a chair and learn as a student, uh, that commodification of education deflates the identity of the student and turns the student into a consumer instead of a learner. Uh, and where consumers are always right, uh, you have uh, learners want to be proven wrong. So it's this basic problem where something that needs to work with a logic that's not transactional and a logic that's not you know, quasi-game theoretic and competitive, which is to say the student constantly running a cost-benefit analysis of if the education's worth it, what job will I be able to get? Uh, is it too uncomfortable and difficult? Why am I paying money for this? Uh, you don't want to be in that kind of relationship when you're in an educational relationship. And that notion that if you make education a commodity, you can't kind of like really do it uh, goes all the way back to Socrates, who was critiquing the sophists for taking money um, and also going to the person who could pay the most money, which meant that the aristocrats got the most quote unquote education. But of course, as Socrates pointed out, when you pay a lot of money for education, you need to cash in on it later, which means you don't really want to learn what's true. You want to learn what's useful to cash in on it right. later. And so the sophists in ancient, you know, Athens, they were being taught mostly rhetoric. They were mostly mostly being taught how to perform uh, a point of view on the you know, platform of politics, whereas Socrates was you know, not doing that. <laughs> he, was making it, he was making it so you go up there and stammer and you wouldn't know really what you stood for until you had some kind of uh, metanoia and transformation of your identity. That's what Socrates was trying to do. That for him was education. Right. Uh, and so there's, there's this notion that the degree to which the educational relationship itself becomes commodified which they undermine where the learning and relationships and other things happen, like in a deep way. And so even if we don't do Jubilees in other places, we literally need to do it <laughs> and can't run a debt-based educational system. Um, right. as a learn- I'm saying this kind of like technically as a learning scientist that there's something about the relationship of teacherly authority and studentliness, which is to say, what it feels like to be a student. Are you able to learn in a sincere and earnest way in a non-strategic relationship to your performance and teacher? Uh, you cannot do that under conditions of um, indebtedness. Uh, right. And and then later on, debt peonage, which forces you into certain kinds of jobs you wouldn't otherwise take. And so now we're back to this other question you raised about, you know, you have to earn a living. Right. Um, one of the reasons it's harder to earn a living for certain age demographics is simply because they have to make X amount more money to pay back their student loans. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's it is quite it is quite a complicated issue. It's worth understanding too that it's it's one of the reasons it's complicated because you know the student loan itself is 
wrapped up into uh, collateral as a collateralized debt obligation and sold on the market by financial services industries. So what that means is that there are people making money by trading student loan debt. Right. And that's one of the reasons that it's so popular. And student loan debt is actually this particular type of awesome debt because you can't go bankrupt from student loan debt. So you, it's, it's felt to be quite, uh, quite nice to, uh, to traffic in. And so there is this one group called the, the Rolling Jubilee, and they're moving in health debt. So healthcare expense debt is the other one I would say we just need to deal with. Can't pretend yeah. that that's any way to run a healthcare system and education debt. Uh, similarly, uh, what's interesting about these is, is this rolling Jubilee group where they're actually buying the debt on the market, right? So they're, they're stock traders, they're buying debt on the market, uh, and then just erasing it. Wow. Right? Which um, kind of further they, demonstrates that like, those are just at this point unpinned from gold, those debts are literally ones and zeros just encoded like in a digital inventory and nowhere else. Well, they are that and they're, but there are a bunch of other stuff too. So like it's a bubble. Right. right. So um, if it turns out that, that none of those kids can repay those debts because the investment actually wasn't an investment, which is to say, like, it's kind of like you build a house somewhere uh, and you build it on the idea that it's going to be worth a lot. And then something happens in the town and now all of a sudden it's not worth a lot. Similarly, like you invest in these educational skills thinking that they're going to pay off, but they don't pay off. And then there's all of these mortgages in the first example and student loan where the financial services industries are trading it like it's actually going to be repaid when everyone knows full well that it's not going to be repaid. Um, right. And so that's a bubble. So the other thing with the student loan situation, it is that. Um, so technically from an economic perspective, like if I was an economist, I'd, I'd be wanting to think about the student loan situation as a bubble and finding a way to deal with it. And, I think a lot of economists are going to do that. Um, uh, and some of them will basically try to find a way to um, profit off of it, as you, right. can do, as you can do with bubbles. So it needs to be taken care of. I think there are ways to do it. And the Rolling Jubilee is an interesting example. Um, yeah, that is cool. But there are ethical considerations too, because even though I think it would be like an economic stimulus where a whole bunch of people in a certain generation would have like, $500 extra a month or even more to spend because they're not paying back their student loans. And even though I think it would raise morale for that part of the generation, there are also people who, and Graeber points this out, really tie ethics and the repayment of debt together. So there is uh, a way of thinking about it where it's like, no, these kids took out the debt knowing full well uh, why you're laying them off the hook. Um, you can't retrospectively relieve them from responsibility, etc. So I think... Mm -hmm. There's actually an educational uh, component to this, which is explaining to enough people what the debt-based educational system actually is and where it came from, uh, and clarifying that uh, if we do choose to relieve that debt, it is not an exculpating kind of like move where we're letting all these entitled adolescents off the hook and they'd be responsible and they could just get jobs, et cetera. That, no, that's not the situation. And that requires, again, confronting this, this ordeal of generosity that we're being faced with. Um, right. So the social perception of a debt jubilee is what needs to be considered. And I've said that that's one of the things that was being leveraged when they were doing it in the ancient sacred way was that this is actually a signal the civilization's sending to those people participating in it, um, a signal of 
uh, humility, essentially, when you think about the Saturnalia in particular, uh, which was when the god Saturn, who of course runs everything like with a really like <laughs> strict bookkeeping, <laughs> when the god Saturn uh, is then all of a sudden associated with like radical, like Burning Man style revelry. <laughs> with yeah. the, strict, the strict polar opposite polarizing of that archetype, yeah. um, which is to say the more tied up into these crazy structures of measurement and bookkeeping and uh, quantification and debt and accounting, like all of that stuff, um, there needs to be a way or means of escape to the life world for people in the civilization, which is another way of saying what I've been saying is that the the, ed, the civilization should be trying to educate the people within it in such a way that it is sending the message um, that they are safe, <laughs> right? <laughs> that they're being preyed upon. Uh, yeah. Yes. There's a basic reorientation in the in psychological dimensions of our of our culture, um, the way we understand ourselves. This question: What is the human? Um, uh, this is all tied up in. The thought, what you're forced into thinking about with the, uh, with the social miracles. Yeah, I mean that's something that you're the second and third social miracles kind of expand on. The second being a basic income guarantee, and the third being an integral and decentralized social safety net for things like healthcare. It kind of takes the same logic where if you look at education, like you were just laying out, where we wind up making decisions due to kind of the commodification of the industry, like taking a job or. And by extension, kind of living these lives, we might not otherwise live, um, but we do so in one sense to pay back our debts and in two sense, because that's, that's the structure that we're inside right. of. And if you, if you think about something like a basic income and add on top of that, you know, healthcare and whatever else you want to throw into the bag, you find that people will be, and maybe this is optimistic, but the potential to kind of shift this, shift your life from participating in the market dynamics that always looking at your time as something that can be commodified and sold in order to either pay back your debts or in order to secure and earn that living that is always so precarious. Um, that having these kinds of foundations are something that make possible these new dynamics, these new engagements, and, and you know we can talk about creativity and, and all these kinds of things that might emerge, but. A lot of times, I think an interesting way to think about things like basic income is not thinking about like, this is going to be the thing that saves us because it's not, you know, and, and it always has to be talked about as part of a larger scheme of, of shifts. But it always seems, and also mixing it with the debt jubilee as a really interesting way of kind of triggering this, this shift out of the commodity logic, this shift out of living in service to a debt-based kind of always earning, always survival insecure system. Um, and just kind of stretching our legs, right? As if they've been atrophied and, and we've been sitting for so long and, and figuring out what else is possible. Like, how would I live if I didn't have to spend, all, literally spend my time and, and sell it on the market in order to get back my time in this kind of never-ending cycle? Um, and so a lot right. of these miracles taken together really kind of dislodge our kind, you know, participation or, or kind of forced participation in that system. Totally. I mean, you have to look at them taken together. That's the other thing that the thought experiment forces you to see, which is actually that any of them in isolation could actually be a problem. Right. Like the basic income guarantee in particular, if done incorrectly, is actually a potential nightmare. Like there are ways where we can totally get a basic income guarantee 
and be living in a society no one wants to live in. Right. And so you really have to balance these other factors. And similarly with the universal quote unquote kind of decentralized healthcare system, uh, which is very different from both a market-based system and a state-run system. I talk about this. The key factor here is that people need to be empowered to be healthy and to take responsibility for their health. If you could just creating universal healthcare as we've tried to do, uh, actually systematically disempower people with relation to their health. If you don't couple it to the requisite educational affordances that would allow people to become more sophisticated reasoners about uh, medical testing, for example, or Mm -hmm. medical research. Um, So you can't just look at one of these and say, oh, one of them would be the answer. And you can't, when you do this kind of concrete utopian design fiction, you're looking at the ensemble or the constellation. And, you know, one of the things that kind of my rendering with these 13 do, and this is what you're pointing out, is that I implement them for the sake of precisely changing consciousness. Like my goal is to say, what would be the constellation of like major changes that if executed would alter consciousness in basic ways that would assure a different kind of civilization and some kind of existence for humanity in perpetuity um, instead of temporary. Uh, And yeah, that's a, that's a basic consideration and shifting out of the logic of the commodity form, the application of the commodity form to identity structure. uh, That's part of it. One of them in there is specifically about that, the universal de-alienation and rehumanization. Right. It's, it's precisely that. Um, It's precisely getting out of that. And then, Imagining uh, again a, a different uh, a different answer to this question of what is the human you know and the basic income is kind of the best one because you think all right we forgot that there was most of human history when we weren't wage laborers right that's just true like the vast vast I'm talking like deep time like big history like yeah. there was no wage, there was no wage labor like wage labor is very contemporary phenomenon. But yet we forget that. So we're trapped in the kind of like um, presentism of late, late capitalism. Can't imagine our way out of wage labor. And we're actually faced with this question, and I find it a lot, and it's an educational question, is what is the human if they're not a wage laborer? Right. What is, what, and let, well, what is the meaning of life yeah. uh, if you're not a wage laborer? Why do you go to school? If you're not going to end up growing up to be a wage laborer, right? Why do you get up in the morning, take a shower, brush your teeth, eat breakfast, get ready to do something if that something is not wage labor? Um, And there are some people who think they're free from wage labor and that they're asking themselves that question, but they're actually not because they're living in a society where everyone else has wage labor. So they're actually in a simulation of freedom from wage labor, which distorts their perception of their own position. So it's not the the case that rich people get to entertain this experiment. Um, This is a broader question about how it would change our understanding of ourselves and expectations around human development and education. Um, And, uh, you know, incidentally, often people who have a lot of money end up getting jobs where they get stressed out and just to make more money. And in part because they don't actually have a good answer to this question. <laughs> what is the human? Yeah, right. what, what is the human is if they're not a wage labor? In fact, you need to feel productive. You feel guilt for whatever inheriting money. Uh, and so there's this way in which the need to have a job to be productive, which means in our translation to make money. Yeah. So 
the question of that, you know, the question of that future beyond wage labor is not a question of economics, although of course it is. It's actually a question of really deep question about what's the human if it's not a wage laborer. We need to be able to answer that. And right now our civilization certainly does not have an answer to that. And so until we get something that could even remotely look like an answer, we can't even entertain it seriously. Right. Um, it's that's this, why, this great silence. Right. It's this great silence. And that's why most of the scenarios for basic incomes are a disaster because you're just giving people money to go to the mall right. or, buy cig- or buy cigarettes or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's a nightmare. Yeah. We have made it through a four out of the 13 miracles, which means that there are nine others. And um, anybody interested in this, please check out. I think it's the fourth chapter of the book. Uh, he lays all of them out. It's really fascinating to get into. But uh, as the outside world beckons, I did want to get in one more question before we, before we hit up on sure. time here. Uh, and it's about, it's about a, a passage from your book again. And in it, you write, I seek to disclose the reality of a universal human emancipation that is always already imminent as a possibility latent in human social structures. The pulse of freedom, as it were, is irrepressible, ubiquitous, and I'm going to butcher this word, indefigable, or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, Indefigable, it means unable to be fatigued. There it is. Um, my question is, so much of your work is kind of looking at the present and imagining what it can become. And there's a lot of critique involved in this kind of thing. But a lot of the teaching of, of a lot of contemplative practice, a lot of mystical traditions is that whatever it is that we're looking for is in some sense already here, right? That there's in some sense a kind of latent reality. And that if we purely occupy ourselves with kind of looking towards a future or kind of building something that then will be happy, then will be okay, it kind of draws you out of the present. So I wanted to ask you, in your own life, when you get engaged with this kind of work, how how do you remain kind of connected with what beauty is is already here and with what kind of, you write about this latent perfection? How do you kind of maintain a connection to that amidst all of your work? Huh. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the quote actually is sourced in like Pascar and his ontology and Habermas's formal pragmatics and where they're both both pointing to is that there's a what's sometimes called in religious studies an immunitization of the eschaton or a detranscendentalization of the subject. And this is a complicated way of saying that there is implicit in every word, every sincere communication, and, and Pascar goes so far to say as in every gesture uh, or intentional action implicit in it is an appeal to a universal truth. And this is a basic insight in some contemplative traditions too, that um, you're always already caught up in this realm of freedom and truth. And you have the opportunity at every moment to uh, say something true and to be understood as having done that. And in the meeting of those two minds, there's this kind of transcendental identification, uh, which is not mystical, but takes place every time there's actual communication. Um, and that sense of the pure imminence of truth or its ready availability in any instant of sincere human interaction, that's where you have to go. I mean, meditation is important, but you do it with your eyes closed or open, but usually alone and not talking. Right. Uh, 
Whereas this is a different kind of statement. It's looking for something in the living moment uh, and in the soul of the world, uh, not in the spirit uh, from which the world is made, as it were. There's a just, there's a kind of way of a way of understanding non-duality, essentially, mm -hmm. um, which is the only way to grapple with this kind of scholarship and work. Um, and it is not a retreat, but rather a deeper form of ensoulment. And so I would, of course, advise everyone to get a meditation practice and be able to stabilize yourself. But most of the work is done in relationship and in the small, I don't know, five to seven person tribe or family unit um, where the eyes meet and you can smell one another and you're doing the serious talking, uh, the serious talking where the soul work happens, where you grapple with tragedy and grief and reality itself, uh, not the fictitious conversations that are text-basing, quasi-anonymous online or the spectacles of media interaction and uh, so-called debates. Uh, you know, so you end up returning to the human, which is not a return to the inner self through meditation, uh, but a, a return to one another. Uh, and the metaphysical realities that are displayed to us when we actually attempt to sincerely communicate. And this returns to the stranger that we meet on the road mm. uh, in a time between worlds when we need to figure out how to, you know, endure <laughs> this unbearable, <laughs> to, to endure the unbearable request that the stranger makes of us. And it's only through sincere earnest communication with the stranger and the reciprocation of that communication by the stranger to you which is to say you're actually meeting on the road not just looking at the stranger on the road and he's not just looking at you uh it's in those moments that actually the reality is, is shown um and uh so we have to return to that uh when i say return to metaphysics which is part of the title of one of my papers it's actually a return to that. It's not a return to like ancient books or crazy abstract thinking. Uh, it's a re it's a return to the uh, you know the obvious, the obvious imminent realities of things like love and proper speech. Um, so so that's kind of a, a more sophisticated answer than maybe you wanted, or an answer that was avoiding addressing my personal life. But, <laughs> no, that was perfect. But that is, I think the answer that needs to be said, Yeah, because I think there's a, a seeking and rightfully so for contemplative practice and for ecstatic experience. Um, and these things are important. Um, uh, but it is not often where the, as Hillman would say, the soul making or soul work gets done. Um, that happens, uh, in that covenant of community and right now most of our communities are, are quite small and right. uh and right so that's what it takes long-term relationships with small number of people where you can uh you know not be confused about what the nature of the human is <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and say the right things about the meaning of money and uh the meaning of creativity and um, and love. So yeah, that's that. Yeah. Zach, I cannot thank you enough for your time. It's been an absolute blast and, um, totally man. Yeah. I appreciate it. Hey, cheers. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. Uh, Zach isn't on social media, but his website is zachstein.org, which I'll put up on the show notes, along with a bunch of links to find Zach's work, his book, and a full list of the 13 social miracles, because I do think that they are most powerful when taken together. Uh, I was tempted to add a little five or 10 minute kind of solo segment at the end of the podcast here, just to pick out a few threads that Zach touched on that I wanted to get a little deeper into or had done all this prep work on how I wanted to get into the idea, but we didn't wind up with the time to do so. But I didn't do that. Um, That might be something I try in the future, adding a segment on the end where I can ramble a little bit about what the guest said that I found really interesting and be able to tie in anything I'd wanted to bring up but didn't find the chance. We'll see how that goes. Uh, And if you enjoyed the podcast, it is still in its infancy and sharing it on social media or rating it on iTunes goes a long, long way and I appreciate any support. And if you want to help support the project further, um, there's the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Oshanjaro, or you can access it through the podcast website, which is musingmind.org slash podcast, where even a monthly donation of $1 goes a long, long way in helping this become a sustainable project and a higher quality production. And uh, thanks for being here and talk to you next time. Thank you.